Let's look at second. Uh, sorry, First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. As we continue our series in this tremendous book, verses eleven and twelve. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Kevin just read for us Exodus chapter 30, that portion. Uh, Throughout the, the Bible, the word holy, as we just saw referenced in Exodus 30, the word holy is used of both God and man. And by the way, it's also, as we just read, it's used of things. It's used of uh, tables, lampstands, basins, uh, the tent of meeting, and so forth. And so the question is, can a thing like this, a table or a lampstand, can that be holy? In what sense uh, can that be holy? Is that holy? According to Exodus chapter 30, those things were holy things. In what sense? We think of holiness, but normally think of morality, honesty, righteousness. Uh, something is holy, it's moral, it's upright, it's just. In what sense can a table or a lampstand be moral or upright or just? Well, when we remember the meaning of the word holiness, we understand. The word holiness in the Old Testament and the New, both terms, speaks of being separate, set apart, distinct. Uh, In the Old Testament, things were set apart to God. There was a table, a a lamp, and the tent of meeting, set apart for God's exclusive use. Not to be used for other things. So, the table, for instance, mentioned in the tent of meeting, that wasn't used for meals. It, uh, you didn't gather around that and have lunch. It was set apart simply for the worship of God. Set apart from common, normal use, and set apart from any kind of sinful use. Set apart for the exclusive use of God. Now, we speak of God being holy, we really mean two things. First, he is separate, set apart from his creation. He's not one of us. He's not a a created entity. In fact, one definition uh, that floats around out there is um, God is anything that's not been created. Theologians will use that phraseology sometimes. Define God. Anything that's not created, that's, that's God. So God is set apart, separate from his creation, from us. He's not one of us. He's not susceptible to uh, the challenges that we're susceptible to. He's also set apart, separate from sin at, at every level. He's set apart from any, any impurity, uh, any, any, any wrongness. He is constitutionally upright, constitutionally just and pure. Now, when we talk about people... Being holy, which is what we're going to talk about today. What does that mean? Well, it means to be set apart. As Christians, 
The Bible, the Bible, by the way, does call Christians saints. It's used in a derogatory way in our world. Oh, he's such a saint. No, the Bible uses the word. It speaks of Christians as saints. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean sinless, though we wish it did. We'll struggle with sin until the next life as Christians. What it means simply is a set-apart one. Those who know Jesus Christ are set apart to him. Set apart from normal, common things and set apart from any kind of wickedness and sin. Set apart for God and his glory. Do you think of yourself that way? The Old Testament, you had the the table and the tent of meeting, and they were used only for God's worship and service. And there's a very real sense, folks, in which that's what we are as well. We are set apart. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've bowed your knee to Jesus the King and trusted him and your sins are forgiven, if you're a child of God through faith, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, you are a set-apart entity for God's use For his glory. That's what you are. That's who you are. Now, we just read verses 11 and 12, and you're going to look at those those verses and say, Pastor, uh, the word holy isn't in this, these two verses. What's wrong with you? Well, there's a lot wrong with me, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Yes, I know the word holy is not in there, but the theological idea of holiness is right there. It's at the heart of all that he says. You're sojourners and exiles. You're disconnected from the world uh, and therefore abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's talking about how to deal with sin. He's talking about holiness here. Let, let's, let's just note some of the commands before we dig into the text proper. Verse 1, you see the phrase, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse I'm sorry, verse 1, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 11. Verse 12, you see the the participial phrase, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That is a participial phrase. You say, well, that's not a command. Yes, it is. In the Greek, when you have a command, and then you have immediately after it a participial phrase, uh, that participial phrase is connected to the command. It becomes a command. So you really have two commands here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Using these two phrases, Peter speaks of holiness uh, from the negative and the positive sides. First of all, uh, in order to live holy lives, we must reject sinful choices and actions. We must abstain from fleshly lusts. Notice what he says exactly here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Folks, those of us who know the Lord, this is the battle every day. The Holy Spirit's within, but there's also a sin principle that is still there. And there's a war going on constantly between the desires of our flesh Now, we're not controlled by those desires anymore. We're now new children. We've been given life. And so we're not controlled by those sinful desires as we once were. But they're still there, and they're still arm wrestling uh, with the Spirit of God within me, and there's still a war going on. 
And that's, that's going to be the case our entire lives. Which makes heaven a wonderful thought when the, the war is over. So the word abstain is a very strong word. It means to keep away, to avoid something, to hold yourself back from something. Uh, to put it in football terms, to, to uh, stiff arm. That's really the idea. You ever played football and you ever got caught the pass or ran, cut through the line, went through that two-hole or the four-hole, and you get open field, and your one arm is sticking out. You're trying to knock down, push away anyone in your way as you're headed for the goal. That's what you're doing. That's the idea here, to stiff arm as you're headed for the goal, as you're serving the Lord. So there will be within us a war, a constant war. And what do we do with our desires of sin, the passions of the flesh? Folks, we don't entertain them. We don't indulge them. We don't give in to them. If there are certain things that you are prone, certain sins you're prone to, stay away from those things which will cause you to think about that. Don't allow your flesh to have opportunities to to consider that sin. Just get yourself out of those situations. Don't entertain the sin. Don't think about it. Well, it's not sin to think about that thing. Yes, it is, actually. Don't give into it. Push it away. He goes on. He talks now about holiness in the positive sense. So the negative sense... You're pushing it away. This is what we're not doing. In order to live a holy life, a life that pleases God, there are certain things we're not doing. We're not engaging with, entertaining, uh, and giving into the passions of the flesh. What are we doing then, positively? Keep reading. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, verse 12, honorable. So here's the second thing. See, it's not enough, folks, just to kind of get rid of the sinful things. It's more, the Christian life is more than that. A holy life, a life separated to God, is more than that. It also means doing the things that are right and good. This word honorable is a great little word. The Greek word kalos. It means good, pure, honorable. It actually means beautiful. Sometimes it's translated beautiful. So others will see your beautiful life, your, your God-honoring life. So we, we, we push out of our lives those things that are contrary to God, and we add to our lives those things that are right and good and pure and beautiful and honorable. That's what it means to be holy. Okay, so what does holiness look like in everyday life? I'm going to have Blaine put some passages on the, on the screen behind me. It will be easier than having you flip back and forth. So these texts talk about holiness in practical terms. What do we mean when we talk about living a life that is set apart to God? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's talking about people who are not Christians. They will not inherit. They will not go to heaven when they die. And what is their life like? These are the things we're pushing away. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. So, well, I'm not a thief. Yeah, but you might be greedy. I just want more. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such is what some of you were. This is what some of you were. He's talking to Christian people. This is what drove you before. Now that you're a Christian, they don't drive, these sins don't drive you. They, we still have to wage a war against them, but they don't drive them. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh. Remember, we're talking about the very idea of abstaining from the passions of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Enmity, strife, and jealousy. Division. Envy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies. And things like these. Notice that little phrase, things like these. He's telling us, my list is not exhaustive here. Here's a list, but I'm not telling you everything. There are other things as well, and you know what they are. We all know what they are. Things that don't honor God. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who are driven by these things are not Christians. But here's now the positive side. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. We don't even talk about these things. As is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place for believers but instead let there be thanksgiving. So we don't even talk about these things. We don't joke about these things. That would be out of place for the Christian. Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God will judge those involved in those things. Colossians 3, 8-12. You must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk with your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put on, uh, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, meaning you're a new person now. Put on then, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So we talk about a holy life, and there are, there's passage after passage, and I've just given you a few here we could look at, which gives us an idea what a holy life is. If, if we're going to be set apart to God, what does that mean in, you know, when the rubber meets the road on you know, Monday morning? These kinds of texts help us. Now, I want to say one more thing that's not in any of these texts, but we find it throughout Scripture. And that simply is that uh, holiness is not simply what we do. 
It starts with what we love or who we love. God is never pleased with us simply doing the right things. Our love for God must be motivated by, our, our holiness must be motivated by a love for God. I'm doing these things because I love God. Because I am wholly set apart to him. Because I'm devoted to him. Because he is, uh, is the apple of my eye. I love God more than anything. And therefore, I will seek to be like him in this world. So let's not think in terms simply of the, the list of things that we do or and or don't do. That is part of it. But that must be a reflection of who we love most. God's not pleased if we just check off the list. It starts with, I love God. So here's the question. Why is it so important that we live holy lives? Peter answers that question here. Why should we pursue holiness? Let's pray. I know you think, well, you should have prayed long before now, but let me pray, and we'll jump into this text. All right? Thank you, Father, for these two verses and how strong they are, how, how, how challenging they are. Help us, Father, as we dig into them to glean much, to examine our lives, Even the texts we just read, I pray that we will not just have passed by them as we read them, but rather they will be lenses through which we view our own lives and ask the question, am I living in a way that is pleasing to God? Am I living a holy life, a set-apart life? Thank you, Father, for each one who is here. It is not an accident that anyone is here today. You're in control of of all that we do, and if... um, as you've had us as you have us here today under this portion of the word, I pray that your spirit will use it in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Two things this morning, two main points. First of all, we should we should pursue holiness because we are holy. We should pursue holiness because we are holy people, holy entities, holy creatures. The foundation of of the Bible's commands to live a holy life is the fact that we are not citizens of this world. Notice what he says here, verse 11. He says it almost in passing. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He really doesn't have to say that. He could just write, Beloved, I urge you, abstain from the passions, passions of the flesh. But he adds, I'm speaking to you as those whom I love and as those who are different from everyone else on this planet... You are sojourners and exiles. And so the holiness that we are to live, we are to live this because this is what we are. We're not citizens of this world. The word sojourner speaks of someone who makes his home in a place where he's not a citizen. So you move to another country. uh, Lock, stock, and barrel, you live there. You have no rights. You're not a citizen. You'll never be a citizen. That's the idea here. Uh, the, the word exile speaks of a temporary visitor. Someone is just passing through. So you, you're driving and you stop someplace for a couple nights in a hotel and you, you sightsee and you jump in your car and you drive a little further and you're, you're just trying to see the country. And you're, you're just stopping along the way. But you're not putting roots down. That's the idea of these terms. There's no roots. You live here, but 
You're not a citizen of here. You don't have any of the rights of a citizen. You're just passing through is the idea. When God opened our hearts, folks, and redeemed us, he transferred our citizenship from this world to heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that very thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. At that point where by the grace of God, he opened your heart and saved you, if you're a Christian today, he transferred your citizenship to glory. And you're no longer a citizen here. We're temporary residents of this God-hating world. We live here, but we don't belong here. Have you ever noticed that when people move away, sometimes they change in significant ways? I know people who grew up in the, in the north or the midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, in all their formative years, you know, from, from birth to 18, 19, 20, they've lived in the Midwest. And then they moved down south for four or five years. Any of you know people like this? And they come back, and they're saying stuff like, y'all. You know, they, 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 they suddenly have an accent. And their, dread, their style of dress maybe has changed a little. And, uh, and maybe their, their, their food choices are a little different. There's just a little bit of time. They spent 18, 19, 20 years, you know, in the Midwest, we'll say. And for a few years, they're some, in some other culture. And they come back and they've been influenced and changed. Peter's getting at that here, folks. He knows that the believers he's writing, that they're immersed into a world that rejects Christ and Christian values. He understands that this world offers opportunities for the passions of the flesh to be satisfied. He realizes that the sinful perspectives and values of the world around these believers could easily rub off on them. And that's true of all of us. And it, it, it does happen. We're citizens of another place. We're living here temporarily. This world does not reflect God, does not reflect Christianity or Christian values, but we're immersed in it every single day. If you turn the TV on, you turn the radio on, you drive by billboards, it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. If your eyeballs are open and you, have, and you can hear and you can think and, and, and process what you're seeing and hearing, you're going to be influenced by the world. Peter understands that about his readers. And so he starts out by saying, remember, you're not of this world. You're in it, but you're not of this world. Reflect the value system of God in the world. Don't let the world rub off on you so you become worldly, is really, I think, what he's getting at here. And we see this kind of thing reflected in Romans chapter 12. I think uh, that'll be on the screen too. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Note this now. Do not be conformed to this world. Because this is a natural fight for us. Being pressed into the mold of the world. But instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is 
the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. This transformation is of the mind, the renewal of the mind. How does that happen? By the word of God. We need to spend more time in Scripture. I mean, we get up in the morning and we, you know, start eating breakfast, we turn the radio on, and the world's influencing us right there. Pick up the paper or a magazine or whatever, influence. On the way to work, hit the radio, influence. You're at work, influence. The world is there. And it'll be, it is so easy to become just like everyone around us. And the command is not to be allow ourselves to be pressed into that mold, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking processes, which occurs as we learn the Word of God, meditate on Scripture, allow it to be the primary influence in our lives. There's no way we can disconnect from these influences, but the primary influence must be Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we might become something. In other words, we're not commanded by Scripture to be holy so that we become holy. He's absolutely right. He goes on to say, It is something we are to do because of what we already are. In other words, we don't pursue holiness to become holy. We pursue, pursue holiness because we are holy. Because we are set apart to God. We're sojourners. Uh, we are exiles in this world. Uh, Peter avoids two extremes here. I want to just quickly mention. The first extreme is living in a sinful world and being tempted to isolate ourselves. Now, one, one way to minimize those influences is to minimize the influences. There's, I, bet, I bet I can find a house somewhere in Wyoming where there's like 50 miles between me and the next house. And I don't have to get internet. I probably can't get internet <laughs> out there. I don't, I don't get TV. I'm just, we're just going to stay in our house. I'm going to do my job remotely. We'll never have to leave the house. Once in a while we go to the store, we drive 50 or 60 miles, go to the store, or we, or we have it delivered, even better, and we say hi to the person who delivers it, and we stick it in our freezer, and we're good, and we don't have any connection with anyone ever. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No worldly influences. Now, some of you would say, I, I, could, I could do that. Bad. Notice, notice he says here, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful. As attractive as it might sound to totally disconnect with the world and its influences, we can't do that. We are in the world, but we're not of it, but we're still in it. The other uh, thing we might be tempted to do is to just blend in. Okay, If I'm not going to disconnect, it would just be so much easier just to blend in. It's pretty much be like everyone else. Let me say, if you do that, your life will be a wasted life. We're called to be and must be holy in this life, and we'll see in just a few minutes why. Because God can use holy lives and does use holy lives to minister to other people. And if we just blend in and are like everyone else, because it's easier, and it will be easier in many senses, But if we do that, our lives are going to be wasted lives. 
will stand before the Lord and he won't be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll say something like, where you got in by the skin of your teeth. Your life was of no value. That's not what we want. Second thing we see in this text is that we should pursue holiness because God uses holy lives. Look at verse 12. First of all, holy lives are noticed. He mentions um, among the Gentiles in verse 12, your conduct among the Gentiles, implying that they're seeing it, that unsaved people are seeing your lives. And then he goes on to say, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You see that word see? It's an interesting term. It actually speaks of the, the, the scrutiny, the visual scrutiny of an eyewitness. It's a very strong term. It speaks of an intense, prolonged visual study. It doesn't mean a glance. You know when you're driving? The art of driving is glancing at your speed, at the mirror. Uh, not at your phone, okay? But it, it, you're, you're glancing. That's not this word at all. This word means to stare. To scrutinize with your eyes. That's the term. So you may wonder, by the way, you're living a Christian life in your workplace or among your, your neighbors. You spend time with family uh, who are not Christians and you wonder if they're watching you. And the answer is absolutely they're watching you if you're living a different kind of life. If you're striving to live a holy life, if you live just like them, they're not going to watch you because you're just like them. But if you're not seeking to blend in, if you're seeking to live a set-apart life, you better believe they're not just glancing. They're watching. They're changed now. They're different than they used to be. There's something going on here. And they're watching. And of course they're going to watch. Our lives, if our lives are holy are such a, such a stark contrast from theirs. So different. They're polar opposites. How, how could a non-Christian not notice a person who lives such an unusual life? How could a, a non-Christian not notice a person who is moral and ethical and humble and patient and kind and considerate? How, how could a, a non-Christian not notice a person who controls his temper when before he didn't or, and controls his sexual desires, honors the Lord in that, that regard, who is honest and, and transparent, who seeks the good of others, who loves his family? How can we think for a moment that that will not be noticeable in the world in which we live? Pick up any magazine. Pick up, I'm not really recommending this, pick up People magazine and page through and see what kind of morality is there. And how is it that we think that a moral, godly, ethical, kind, gracious life will not be noticed in this world? It will be. Folks, people are watching. Deal Moody once said, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. You don't sit and yell, I'm holy. That really won't get you very far, by the way. 
Well, you may end up in a, you may end up in the psych ward. I don't know, but what will make an impression is you shining, being a holy person in a world that is absolutely contrary to Christ. That'll make an impression. Now, what's interesting is his next point: holy lives will often be ridiculed. So, verse twelve again. So that, so live a conduct your life in an honorable way, verse 12, so that, here's the purpose, that those two words, so that, translate one Greek word, speaks of purpose. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, ethical, beautiful. Here's the purpose, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So how are they going to respond to your honorable living? According to Peter, they're going to speak evil against you. Don't, don't think that your holy living will be lauded by others. That's not what's going to happen. Isn't it amazing that in our world, evil is so often called good, and good is so often called evil. Now, maybe you're noticing it more and more now, because it is so prevalent now. Evil called good, right, ethical. And good called evil. But that's not a new practice. It's happening here in Peter's day. The more upright you live, uh, the, the, the more they will accuse you of wrongdoing. The, the holier you are, and we just saw that they're seeing you, they're scrutinizing you, they're watching you if you live a different life. The more you do that, the more they will find ways to think in terms of, this person is wrong, this is sinful. And they'll accuse you of that. 1 Peter chapter 4, just turn one page over, one page over. Peter references this idea again. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. So now he's going to describe describe what Gentiles are doing, what sinners, unsaved people are doing. Living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, these are things that happen all the time in our world. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, whether we're talking um, uh, uh, alcohol or or other drugs, because alcohol is a drug. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and all this idolatry, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. See, they're watching you, and they're amazed. Don't you want to do this with us? What's wrong with you? The implication is there's something wrong with you. Because you don't want to be involved in these things. Keep reading. And they malign you. Because you aren't doing the things they're doing, They think what you're doing is evil, according to chapter 2, and they're going to malign you. They're going to oppress you, persecute you. They'll see you as evildoers, speak of you as evildoers, oppress you as evildoers. Looking back at chapter 2. So let's understand. We live a holy life. People will see it, but people won't like it. And they'll respond to it. And often they're going to respond by maligning, by attacking. Now, here's the wonderful thing. By the way, before I talk about the wonderful thing I'm going to say, 
There's another wonderful thing here. That is, we do all this not because it makes life easy, but because it glorifies God. And if you're living a godly life, a holy life, striving to, I'm not saying a perfect life, a sinless life, that won't happen in this world. But if you're striving to live a holy life, the primary reason we do that is because we love God. We want to glorify God. And when life is hard, because of your holiness, and you're hurting, just just rest in this fact. God is pleased. If no one else is, God is pleased. That's all I have to know. But he gives us another motivation now. Holy lives may be used of the Lord to bring some to Christ. So, again, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and while they're speaking against you, they may see your good deeds, your godliness, your honorable life. You're pushing aside, stiff-arming sin as, you know, by, by, the, by the Spirit's power. And glorify God on the day of visitation. This phrase, day of visitation, it speaks of that day when a person becomes a Christian. When God visits someone. For me, I heard the gospel for a year. I was in church hearing the Bible, hearing the gospel, and begin to understand that I'm a sinner and that I need forgiveness and I can't work my way. I, I was involved in a church prior that taught trust in Jesus and work. And those two together, faith and works, brings eternal life. I realized during that year, 15 to 16 years old, that that's not what salvation is. And a person becomes a Christian, a person has their sins forgiven, becomes a child of God when they trust wholly, fully, um, without reservation in Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. When they bow their knee to Christ. And by God's grace, I did that that day, one day, as I was 16 years old, standing in the foyer of a church. And so on that day, God visited me, is the idea. He brought to bear on my mind and my heart the teachings of Scripture regarding my own sinfulness and what Christ has done for me, what I had learned. He brought all that to bear. All the puzzle pieces came together. And by the grace of God, I, I trusted Jesus Christ that day for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the day of visitation. And on that day, I began to glorify God very imperfectly. And it's still very imperfectly. But on that day, before that day, all I was doing was seeking my own glory, my own fun. So that's what we're talking about here. That when we are live holy lives, they may see our good works and glorify God on the day he visits. We might respond in faith on the day he visits and become Christians. So this is, this is simply wonderful. A holy life, people see it, they scrutinize it, many don't like it. But by the grace of God, some understand. And God uses that holy life to bring some to faith in Christ. What a wonderful motivation that would be, and it should be for us. We live in a world where holiness is scoffed at, but it is holiness that God uses to convict people of sin and draw them to himself. By the way, passages like this, 
put to rest once and for all the very wrong philosophy that we hear reflected so often today. And that is, we, we can win people to Christ by being like them. That philosophy permeates our evangelical world. We win people to Christ by being like them. We win people, worldly people, to Christ by being worldly along with them. We go with them to the bars and to ungodly concerts. We're with them. We're involved in their lives. We live like them, and by means of that kind of a life, we can reach them. That's the exact opposite of what Peter is saying and what the New Testament teaches. You don't win ungodly people to Christ by living an ungodly life. If you are, what are you winning them to? An ungodly life, the one you're living. No, we reach people for Christ by living holy lives. People see Christ and his holiness in us. By the grace of God, he saves. So folks, we are God's holy instruments. We're to be holy because that's who we are. That's what we are. And we are to be holy because people will see it. They won't always like it, but sometimes God will use that to bring people to Christ. We live, folks, in what is becoming more and more a homogenized time. A time when Christianity is more and more homogenized. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay, how many of you... Back in the day, milk came in glass bottles. Who remembers those days? Not me. I'm not that old. See, some of you think I am. What's that? You remember it. And do and you remember the day when the, the glass bottles came and it wasn't homogenized? What, how did it look then? Milk was on the bottom. And the cream, what color was the cream? Cream color. And the cream was on top. How many of you remember those days? Okay, Blaine, you remember those days? Boy, you really are old. We, we, and, and now we don't have that, right? Now it's all homogenized. It's mixed together in a way such that it will never separate. Christianity today is very homogenized. See, Christians should be the cream at the top. Very distinct, not connected, disconnected, apart from. But Christianity is not that way anymore. Or Christianity today is mixed right in with the world. Let me challenge you. Let the cream rise to the top. Don't blend in with the world. Let's be holy people, first and foremost, because that will bring God glory. Because he deserves, he deserves us mimicking him and not mimicking his enemies. And let's be, seek to live holy lives because God can and often will use them for his glory to bring people to Christ. Thank you, Father, for this time. We're so grateful for your, your word and its clarity. Thank you for this text. Help us, Father, to to be what we are. We are set-apart people. We are holy people. We are people who are not residents of this world. Help us to be what we are, who we are. Help us to be set-apart people to you. And use our holiness as we pursue it 
to bring glory to your name and to bring people to Christ. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen.